I'm Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is season two of Intersectionality Matters, the podcast that brings intersectionality to life by exploring the hidden dimensions of today's most pressing issues, from Say Her Name and Me Too to the war on civil rights and the global rise of fascism. This idea travelogue lifts up the work of leading activists, artists, and scholars, and helps listeners understand politics, the law, social movements, and even their own lives in deeper, more nuanced ways. COVID-19 has changed everything, halting life as we know it in its tracks, We're all reeling from death and disease at a level that we've not seen in our lifetimes. On the other hand, COVID-19 has uncovered conditions that have been there all along. To respond to this global pandemic and to adapt to this new way of life, we're doing things a bit more DIY than usual. We're not in the studio and we're dispersed all over the country, but we did want to respond to the urgent need for information, bringing to you the voices of some of the leading experts to help us grapple with the new and not so new dimensions of this crisis. We are facing this cataclysmic crisis in ways that are both the same and different. When we're able to hold these truths simultaneously, we're better equipped to act in ways that benefit all of us and that prevent the most vulnerable among us from falling through the cracks. It's in this vein that we're calling the series Under the Black Light to uncover the conditions that pre-existed the virus and the cracks in our social structure that the virus can now exploit to wreak maximum havoc. We also want to enhance our social connections in the face of physical isolation and reimagine what action and organizing looks like given the shape of our new world. In the coming weeks, we'll be producing live conversations that bring together artists, activists, thought leaders, scholars, service providers, and others on the front lines of the fight against COVID-19. Each Wednesday, we'll bring you a virtual conversation over Zoom, which will then be released as an episode of Intersectionality Matters in the following week. This conversation brought together six incredible panelists, Eve Ensler, Laura Flanders, Eddie Glau Jr., Ijin Poo, Dorothy Roberts, and Alvin Starks. Full bios are available at aapf.org. I began the conversation by asking Aijin, Executive Director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, to tell us what she's been seeing and hearing on the ground. So at the National Domestic Workers Alliance, we work with uh, the nannies who take care of children and are currently caring for the children of the public health officials and the emergency room doctors and all the people who continue to work on the front lines. We also work with the house cleaners and the home care workers who are the guardians of some of the most vulnerable populations to the virus right now. This workforce is a workforce that's vast majority women, uh, mostly women of color and immigrant women. And like many, many other low-wage workers in the service economy, they came into the crisis without having any kind of safety net, earning very low wages. So they were living already paycheck to paycheck without access to benefits or a safety net or paid leave or paid time off or even job security. And so when the crisis hit, um, when the pandemic started to spread, 
they started to lose income and lose work. And that created a set of impossible choices for this workforce. We were talking to women who uh, literally on our video conferences, they show us their phones to show that there's literally one cent left in their bank account. They're wondering mm -hmm. if they have enough food for one night, two nights, if they could stretch to three. They are having to make the difficult choice to leave their own children at home in order to care for an older patient who is in desperate need of assistance. They're having to just make an, an impossible set of choices that have to do with living and working in a low-wage economy where people are um, have no resilience, economic resilience or safety net. And then to be caring on the front lines um, is mm -hmm. just creating a, a tremendous amount of stress and pressure. And so we're at the National Domestic Workers Alliance. We're doing our best to support and, um, and provide assistance. And it is it is like nothing I've ever experienced. Um, one thing we are doing is we have launched a coronavirus care fund to provide emergency assistance to domestic workers and care workers who are in dire need right now. And so anyone who's listening who wants to be in support and solidarity can really help a lot. Thank you for, for that, Ijen. I, I guess, you know, one of the things that is just hard to wrap my head around, and I'm sure I'm not alone, so many of the frontline uh, providers, particularly um, home health care aides, on one hand, they are, they are essential. I mean, one of the uh, realities is that so many of us who have parents who uh, need help are able to be ensured that someone is taking care of them, for example. Um, yet, at the same time that they are essential, the level of support that they can rely on would suggest that they're expendable. And it's hard to figure out how those two things make sense, being essential on one hand and obviously so expendable on the other hand. What, what, what is it that you're seeing or how should we understand that contradiction? Well, what we're hearing, and I was just on the phone with a home care worker named Lee from Los Angeles who was sharing her experience, and essentially most home care workers are continuing to go to work. And so while most of us are getting the directive to stay at home and shelter in place to slow the spread of the virus, which is absolutely essential, we actually really need home care workers to continue to go to work every day because they're providing life-saving services for the elderly population who's tremendously at risk. And they have to continue to provide those services so that we don't overburden the healthcare system. And so they're a critical part of this puzzle and, and, and helping us survive and make it through this moment of crisis as a nation. And the average mm -hmm. annual income of a home care worker is $16,000 per year. So people are risking their lives while providing life-saving services for other people and are really have poverty wages uh, to come home to. And many of them don't have any support around their own childcare needs. And in many places, they're still not designated as essential personnel. So they're not being prioritized for supplies, for tests, right? And so we're counting on them to take care of these vulnerable populations and who is taking care of them. 
I don't think it's an accident that it's mostly women of color who have always done this work, that the work itself of caregiving is associated with work that women are expected to do culturally. I think there's a lot of cultural, historical, and systemic reasons why the dynamic exists. And I think the opportunity of this moment is to really transform the way that we care for and value this work, right? There's mm -hmm. a spotlight mm -hmm. on the important life-saving services that these workers are providing now. The truth is they're providing them all the time. Let's protect and value and support them anew. You, you raise the question of the value, or I, I guess to, to flip it, the undervaluation of this kind of work. And I want to bring Eve Ensler in here, who's been doing work with the nurses, um, which, of course, is a group of people largely composed of women. One could say they're already vulnerable to the pre-existing conditions of living in a patriarchal society. Eve, what have you been seeing, um, what have the nurses been reporting about what the face of this pandemic looks like for them? Thank you, Kim, and thank you, Ijen. Um, and I just want to say how happy I am to be with this amazing group of thinkers and human beings. And hello to everybody out there listening. For the last few weeks, our V-Day movement, we've been working with National Nurses United to do what we can to support their efforts to get the word out about the very precarious and dangerous situation nurses and all healthcare workers are facing right now, doctors, cleaning people, aides. Um, I just want to say a few things that are going on. Nurses have been told by the CDC, for example, that if they don't have masks, which many of them don't, to use their bandanas and wrap them around their faces. I saw images today of women in an um, emergency room who were dressed in garbage bags, using them as gowns. Workers are, being, are making um, gloves out of garbage bags. They're being told to reuse their N95 masks over and over to keep them in brown paper bags. Um, I was told that if they would do this on a normal day, they would be fined or reprimanded because that is obviously toxic. I just was listening this morning and heard this report where nurses were saying and, and first-line workers were saying that they're not even getting tested um, before patients. They don't know when they will be tested, and many are being told that even if they think they have the virus, not to leave work unless they are showing fevers and, and, a, and a severe outbreak of it. I think we all know how dead Deadly, everything I'm saying is not only to the healthcare workers, to their families, but to patients themselves. In China, for example, before they really understood what was happening with healthcare workers, a lot of nurses and doctors and aides were dying, and then they got them the appropriate and proper PPEs and after that, zero out of 42,000 healthcare workers were impacted. For myself, um, I have a profound relationship with nurses and healthcare workers. I was very sick 10 years ago and I almost died. And I know that they are really um, the moral center of our world. As a brilliant Mark Davis says, nurses are our social conscience, the vanguard of the proletariat. And 88% of them are women. Many are women of color. Many are immigrant women. Workers are most needed in this crisis are valued the least. We are literally sending them in um, without any protections, without any support, and it, it feels tantamount to femicide. 
So, Eve, you, you, you talked about this also in terms of being essential and undervalued. And there are any number of frames that we can bring to, to think about that. And, and one that you've offered is, is femicide. When you pull back the lens and look at this moment, this is a long time in coming. Um, what, what are just some of the broader historical things that you think we need to bear in mind to understand how it's possible that the people that we need the most are being looked after the least in this moment? Well, I think it goes back to slavery, right? I mean, I think all the origins of it were there. The people who were serving and building and giving and doing and making everything possible were the people who were treated the most inhumanely. And I think mm -hmm. in the healthcare system, that has been replicated and replicated. It, it, just even looking at Ebola, the, it, people have been saying forever in the healthcare system, nurses have been screaming this, that there are not the protections that are necessary. There are not the, the system that is necessary. And when you have what one nurse called today a healthcare market, instead of a healthcare system, your priorities are never about the people who are serving. Your, your, your priorities are about making money off sickness and making money off disease. And I think, you know, I was listening today about Cuomo, who is stepping up in some ways to this conflict, but Cuomo has been disbanding Medicare. He has been, he, he erased 20,000 beds from hospitals over the last years because he didn't want to pay for that. And I, I think we really have to look at the fact that I heard um, that wonderful Bradley Whitmore say today, we're willing to stockpile guns and, and ammunition and war stock, right, for the future wars, but we're not willing to stockpile for, to protect our citizens from pandemics and from illnesses. And that is really a profound reflection of the system we live in that dates back to when we enslaved people and we eroded people who were actually the people who were keeping us alive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we'll, we'll, we'll turn uh, to that shortly to talk about other ways that history is making itself evident, manifesting in this moment. Laura, I want to turn to you. Eve's communication with the nurses demonstrates how so much of what is happening is actually running counter to existing knowledge. So knowledge about how all of these practices that now CDC has approved actually runs counter to what's known about the best way to contain this virus. And there are broader knowledge bases uh, that might be tapped that don't seem to be tapped at this moment. So since the earliest stages of the crises, you've been interviewing people like Terry McGovern, who was experienced in and studied the AIDS epidemic. And it seems that some of the concrete lessons that she is bringing to the table um, are lessons both about how to fight an epidemic, but also the concrete ways that we think about disease have to be shifted and changed. So tell us more about um, some of the lessons that, that Terry brought, particularly about approaching the pandemic from an intersectional perspective. And more broadly, why is it that these are some of the last things we actually hear if we're watching you know, mainstream TV or reading the newspapers? Thank you for the question, Kim. I mean, many of the people that I'm speaking with are people with whom I came up, people who fought and struggled uh, through the AIDS crisis. Uh, and they are, many of them now, are frontline experts when it comes to epidemic care and response. 
what I hear from them and Terry at the, the Columbia School of Public Health and others is incredible frustration. Uh, there are certain canards that are recurring. We've never been in this situation before. We are all in the same boat. We must listen to our leaders. Well, we may not have been in this situation before, but we have endured epidemics not unlike this before. AIDS is one, SARS is one, Ebola is one, MERS is another. The point being, we had plenty of information to prepare for this moment, which we did not deploy, have not uh, prepared. We are not all in the same boat. That is a lesson from the AIDS crisis, that while we need universal access, we need respect for the specificity of our conditions. We will not be able to adopt a trickle-down system of healthcare when we have an epidemic that will continue to be deadly if we don't address the specificity of people's lives, and you've heard some of them described on this call. When we hear people over 60 are the most in danger, we don't know that yet, is what Terry said to me. It's like, we don't have the data to back that up because we haven't studied a lot of the groups that we need to study. Finally, the listen to our leaders thing, if there was one lesson that we learned from the AIDS crisis, is that the people who will lead us in the direction that will save us are we those of us who are going through this crisis as patients, as caregivers, as partners? Um, if we don't see leadership given to people who have experience on the front lines, we're not going to get a design for a, a response or implementation of that response or effective evaluation of that response because the wrong people are doing it. So yes, our media love to focus on our leaders and our leaders deserve an enormous amount of um, blame and shame for how they have responded so far. But we also need to be looking laterally at the real experts. Many of them, I think we will find, are patients. And, and of course, one of the reasons that any of us on this phone call know about this is because of the reporting um, that you've done. Independent media, people like you who've been able to tell a fuller story, a deeper story, a richer story, um, have been the lifeline for so many of us. And not all of us have the luxury of knowing about it, knowing how to find it. So we're relying on the mainstream media. And one would be hard pressed to hear about this. Um, how would you assess or help people think about why this is the case, how the media is being, how it's performing and why it's performing the way it is? Well, one of the things that we learned after the election of 2016 was we saw just how weak our local media infrastructure had become. And with the monopolization mm -hmm. of media and the purchasing and buying up of huge chains of our media so that many of our local newspapers, our local communities have no access to local media, we have had a real challenge uh, as a media ecosystem getting accurate information. Epidemiologists were two years ago saying that the collapse of local newspapers was depriving them of a critical source of local information for tracking disease and epidemics. That's the first alarm bell uh, for many epidemiologists that there's a cluster somewhere is when the local radio, mm -hmm. the local paper, the local library starts noticing something. So we have an mm -hmm. institutional mm -hmm. problem, um, but we are seeing in the vacuum an extraordinary um, efflorescence, if you will, of independent media. People are doing webinars. Uh, people are doing uh, Zoom calls like this almost every hour of every day. Information is percolating up, um, but it is at the base 
that we're going to see responses, community-based, facility-based responses at the health level, and it will be at the base that we need the reporting that tells us what's working, what's not, where the weak signals are, amplifies those signals. Uh, otherwise, we will not get a response to this crisis that actually works or, or moves us forward for the future. Thank you, Laura. So in your conversation, you alluded to the trickle-down approaches to uh, justice. And of course, it reminds me very much of the conversations that I've had many with my sister in the law, Dorothy Roberts. So Dorothy, I'm, I'm hoping you can help us illuminate the intersectional dimensions of this crisis, the failures um, and the flawed ideologies that contribute to the vulnerability of black women. And I'm, I was made speechless last week when I, I read a story about how in Chicago during the election, election officials made the decision once some of the senior living facilities in the more affluent side of town refused to allow uh, polling stations to be set up there. They decided then to move the polling stations to senior facilities that were run by the uh, public housing uh, department. And, and, and it appeared as though those seniors living there had no power to uh, resist it. They weren't consulted. Um, it just happened. So, you know, here's a situation, of course, where, yes, the initial information would suggest that seniors uh, need to be safeguarded, but this was a group of seniors because of who they were and the political power they did not have, uh, were not able to protect themselves or be protected. So what's important to know about how, on one hand, we're looking at a disease, we're, we're looking at a pathogen, but on the other hand, many times uh, the disproportionate vulnerability of people of color, and I'm thinking particularly of black women with respect to a range of, of issues, most, most immediately now maternal mortality, uh, often the social determinants of that vulnerability are obscured. And all we have is we don't know exactly why, but there must be something biological going on. Are there some commonalities in, in the way this is uh, thought about the way black people, black women in particular, are situated that are resonant in this story? Yeah, there's a long-lasting idea that Black people's problems stem from some innate defect that we have. Uh, that goes all the way back to the very definition of race as a biological category that explains away white supremacy and racial inequality that assumes that Black people have some innate qualities that lead to their disadvantaged status in our society. Now, putting that in terms of what's going on now with the pandemic, yes, it may be that older people are more vulnerable to this pathogen, but who is most vulnerable is structured. Older Black women are more likely to be in jobs like domestic work where they mm -hmm. have received low wages for out their entire working lives. Uh, they may not be able to retire because they don't have the money to retire. Uh, and so they may be continuing to work 
in dangerous, unprotected types of jobs like home care. It's more likely that an elderly black woman will be working as, uh, as a home care provider than receiving adequate home care. Black mm -hmm. women are more likely to have the poor health conditions in the first place before they are exposed to the virus. And why is that? Well, that's structured as well. Black women are more likely to live in segregated neighborhoods, uh, less likely to have access to good nutrition, are more likely to experience the stresses of racism, which we now know have a big impact on people's health, less mm -hmm. likely to have adequate health insurance, less likely to be employed at a place where they have employer-based insurance, which is what our capitalist system of healthcare relies on. And so for all these reasons, they are more likely to have these underlying conditions, uh, not because of some innate racial predisposition to it. Uh, race isn't the risk, it's racism that is the risk to people's health. And to go back to the idea of uh, who's disposable in our society, we should be very alarmed by the idea of rationing healthcare that maybe we need to sacrifice certain people to the virus in order to get people back to work. Everything about US history uh, tells us that elderly black women are especially vulnerable to being treated in this disposable, inhumane way. Mm -hmm. And you know, um, so many valuable lessons that you've brought to a head for us. The the idea that these are not natural disasters but structural ones, I think, is um, a powerful point. Illustrated in my mind in um, that that picture that I think many people saw um, of Ethel Freeman. She was the 91 year old black woman who uh, survived the flood. Her son. Uh, Herbert was able to bring her to safety, but did not survive the government's rescue efforts. Um, and that picture of, of her body, you know, in the wheelchair, you know, just stayed for days waiting for the government to come. You know, a singular illustration of the fact that much of the you know, tragedy that we look at from so-called natural disasters is the unnatural uh, structures that are in existence, the incompetence, and just the lack of investment in the well-being of those who are most vulnerable. I'm going to move now to Eddie Gloud to talk about some of the historical dimensions of the pandemic. Now, clearly, none of us have seen a pandemic like this in our lifetimes, but that may belie the fact that the road to this moment has been paved with uh, double-may-care intentions to the social welfare of us um, in this country and of us in the world. So if you were to tell this story as uh, the moment of pandemic that has a prequel to it, what would be some of the earlier storylines that you think are now coming to, to bear, that are now being revealed in this moment? Right. You know, that's a wonderful question. And, and let me first thank you for allowing me to participate in this wonderful conversation. No, it seems to me that part of what this pandemic has revealed is the ugly underbelly of American life. And we have to tell ourselves a broader story about how that has come to be. 
And it seems to me, right, that when we exceptionalize Donald Trump, and what do I mean by that, right? When we think that our current reality is really bound up with his incompetence, right, his narcissism, uh, the fact that he's a vulgarian, right, that that is the source of our problem. When in fact, we can tell ourselves a story, if we pan out, that will actually account for Donald Trump as a kind of caricature of a political ideology that really has had the country by the throat for about 40 years. And so when we think about, for example, 1980, let's just go to 1980, although we could go to 1976 with Jimmy Carter. But with the election mm. of Ronald Reagan, we get right, the ascendance of a political ideology that sought in, in explicit terms to roll back the gains of the civil rights movement, of the black freedom struggle of the 20th century, of the mid 20th century, sought to in some ways attack the fundamentals of the New Deal and the great society, right? And in some ways sought to assert a conservative and unequal order and it was extraordinarily successful in its efforts and its attempts, right? Just think about this, in the first year of Ronald Reagan's presidency, right? What did he do? Um, he sought in some ways to uh, eliminate $2 billion with regard, just got, I broke down the data here, $2 billion reduction in federal food stamp programs by fiscal 1983. The elimination of $2 billion of guaranteed student loan program the reduction of $1.7 billion from child nutrition programs. He even went on September 4th, 1941, the Department of Agriculture reduced the amount of food served to 26 million children in over 940,000 schools across the nation. In October of that same year, more than 400,000 families were removed from federal and state welfare rolls. In literally one year, in literally one year in office, Reagan succeeded in expanding poverty in America, right? In expanding the poverty. The number of poor Americans increased by 2.2 million, 2 million people. And what we mm -hmm. saw, uh, what mm -hmm. we've seen since 1980 is a systematic shredding of the social safety net that has made mm -hmm. folk, right, particularly vulnerable, right? That in mm -hmm. other words, this mm -hmm. pandemic, right, is in some ways, um, how can I put this? Uh, it reveals the disasters that have already been happening, right? And yeah. let me say this really quickly, Kim. This is yeah. not a Republican story. Mm. It's not simply a story of Republicans. One could argue that Ronald Reagan was the second neoliberal president, that the mm. austerity programs of Jimmy Carter, uh, which led many of the Black folk who elected him to say that they felt betrayed, which led many, mm -hmm. only 7 million Black people showed up to vote. I think that's the data. 40% of Black America showed up to vote in 1980, precisely because of Jimmy Carter's triangulation before the third way Democrat of, 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 of Bill Clinton. And of course, when we think about Bill Clinton, we think about the crime bill, we think about welfare. So in other words, the pandemic reveals right, what has been happening all along. And if we just mm -hmm. think it's an indictment of Donald Trump, instead of being an indictment of an ideology, a political ideology that is bankrupt and rotten at its core, then we've narrowed mm -hmm. our vision a bit too much. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and, and Eddie, as you remind us that, importantly, this isn't just a Republican problem, and it's not just a Trump problem. It, it precedes him, both party and in terms of presidency. Um, what comes to mind is the resistance to not only seeing this as you know a bipartisan problem, but also the resistance to talking about the race and gender dimensions of clearly a social stratification around class. So, so to be 
you know, more explicit about this, there will be those who will agree with pretty much everything you said Mm -hmm. and will also say, and therefore, because we are all in this together, I mean, the the we is the 99% of the rest of us or maybe the 80% of the rest of us. This pandemic is impacting all of us. Now is not the time. It's not useful um, to think and talk about the race or gendered or intersectional dimensions of this, right? That right. is not the story right. that needs to be told. So what is it that we need to understand about this backstory that makes it more important to talk about the particularities of vulnerability and, and the use of those who are vulnerable to do this work? We talked a little bit about the weaponization of you know, marginality of people of color. How does that play into the story? Well, I mean, if we're going to understand, I mean, it's a wonderful question. And, 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 and I agree with everything you've just said. Um, um, if we're going to tell the story of the age of Reagan, right, we have mm-hmm. to tell the story of who has borne the brunt of its ugly underside, right? Who, who has caught the most, the most hell over these last 40 years? When we think about uh, what he's done, what, what has happened to SNAP, what has happened uh, to quote unquote wealth, who has borne the brunt of the emergence of the carceral state, when we begin to think about its details, right, we see that particular communities, right, have in some ways experienced the horror of these policy decisions that have fundamentally undermined, I think, the quality of life of this country and undermine our very commitment to democracy itself. So it Mm -hmm. seems to me if we tell a story of misery as if it's generalizable without understanding the differentiated way in which misery is experienced, if Mm -hmm. we just tell a story of horror and not understand the different degrees in which that horror right, is felt in one's bones, then we are actually in that moment in a very odd and ironic way complicit in the evil. Mm-hmm. And so it seems to me mm-hmm. that right now everybody, you know, when, when we had these moments with Katrina or we had the moment in Puerto Rico, these are folks who are other. When we had the AIDS crisis, these are folk who were other. They were out there. It wasn't touching in some ways for some people, their lives immediately. Right now, the pandemic doesn't give a damn what your zip code is, who you love or what color your skin may be. Right. But we understand, as Dorothy made, made very clear to us, that the very structured nature in which dis- in the very structured way in which disaster is experienced forces mm-hmm. us, at least at the moral and ethical level, to really pay attention, at least in my view, to the differentiated way in which harm is experienced. And if mm-hmm. we don't, mm-hmm. then we end up actually becoming part of the problem. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you. Thank you for that. And, you know, I was struck by um, your reminding us of um, some of the ideological work that uh, race did in normalizing the shredding of the social welfare state. I mean, even the term, even now, we can't even really say social welfare without the heavy ideological and stereotypical associations of that concept um, with black women. Oh, absolutely. Um, 
So, so what, one of the huge things that made, one of the conditions of the ideological possibility was racism and uh, sexism against uh, the so-called single-headed dependent household, through which then all of us, the entire nation, underwent a dramatic retraction mm-hmm. of, of the, the kind of social support services that, you know, might have been uh, useful uh, today. So with that, I, I want to turn now to Alvin Starks of the Open Societies Foundation, Uh, who can continue to work uh, with us on this canvas of American history Um, and to speak a bit more to the nation-state politics that Eddie's already alluded to um, that help racialize uh, these outcomes and at the same time make us all vulnerable to uh, a pandemic um, that is unfolding without the kind of supports that would otherwise uh, have been in place. So, Alvin, taking what we've already heard on the call, can you speak a bit more to um, the analysis of this uh, moment, this epidemic that hasn't gained widespread traction that people need to be able to know about to understand more fully and act more deliberately um, in the in the midst of this crisis? Mm-hmm. Again, good evening, and thank you for hosting us, uh, Kim. Um, so in the world of philanthropy, I think we are seeing um, what is at the very early stages of a global pandemic that we haven't seen at this proportion before. Um, when I think about what's currently happening within the industry, you are seeing new initiatives that are beginning to focus on folks who are disproportionately impacted differently upon this virus. For instance, uh, there's a new fund called Racism is a Virus that really focuses on anti-Asian racism. Mm -hmm. Uh, Anti-Asian racism has had a significant increase because of the Trump administration by actually calling it very false narratives of Chinese virus or the Kung flu. Uh, Those of us who are in Asian skin actually experience a different level of oppression that oftentimes doesn't get mainstream attention. Therefore, what you are seeing are advocates who are trying to unify to really disrupt a certain uh, racial myth that has actually permeated for many generations, but now has sort of come back in a newfound way under this new regime. Um, I completely agree that this is global, but our response hasn't been global, partly because Mm -hmm. our leadership isn't global, right? And that's painful to say. So I think we have to really learn from other movements outside of the U.S. context to really better understand where we're going and where there are possibilities. You know, when we talked about authoritarianism, we we have to remember that nearly 50% of the world is under authoritarian regime, right? That's Mm -hmm. quite significant. And that's brand new, right? There's a reason why the EU is coming undone, right? There's a reason why Germany has a different response, that Italy has a different response, but they're not that far away from one another, right? And so now is the, is the time for us to kind of reconnect uh, the web of what kind of world, what kind of galaxy do we really want to live in, right? And I think that's what this moment is actually really helping us understand. Mm-hmm. Thank you. You know, um, so one of, the, one of the things that, you know, the United States has um, is resources. So the question is, has the effort to put forward 
um, several trillion dollars worth of resources, an effort that we can have some confidence will actually change the equation on the ground uh, that will address many of the issues that we have been talking about over the last hour. So for that, I want to go back to iGen to give us a sense of what's in this legislation, who's in it, who's left out of it, what can we expect? Based off of what I know of what working people are dealing with right now, uh, including domestic workers, it in no way addresses the level of pain and, uh, and suffering and need that we need in this country. It is $2 mm. trillion dollars and it does some things that are important, but it is also uh, $500 billion in a corporate bailout uh, without clear mm. requirements to keep workers employed or any clear sense of what the guardrails are gonna be on that money. No expansion of the paid sick days or family leave, no expansion of social security benefits, no student debt forgiveness, no guarantee of free care or treatment for anyone who's impacted. There are some good things just to note that there will be cash payments for families in need, expanded unemployment insurance, but many who need it will not be covered. Um, a lot of these measures will be important to us getting through. But again, the overall thrust of this measure does not meet the needs of working people who are in crisis right now in this country. And we need action, bold action and leadership on the part of our elected officials. And it's really up to us to make that happen. We have to push, we have to call our members of Congress, we have to write email, call, um, really push for what we need and what we deserve. And um, you know, I think the fact that so much attention is being placed on corporate bailouts is mm -hmm. um, us not learning from past um, stimulus uh, and past economic crises, that it is mm -hmm. working workers who drive and build this economy and workers need support right now. And, you know, on that, on the, the note that you said, we've, we've seen this, we've been here before, there, there, there is a sense in which this is deja vu. So um, this, this bill has been, you know, promoted, lauded as the, the most uh, uh, significant uh, investment in, in the American, you know, infrastructure that has been made in over a generation. And yet, at the same time, um, there is a sense that, you know, we've been here before. This is, this is history uh, repeating itself. I wonder, you know, Laura, do, do you have a, a sense that, okay, so the New Deal, um, veterans bills, Katrina, there are elements of what the rescue did that not only failed to really rescue people, but entrenched the structures that had made them vulnerable in the first place? Is, is there a part of this story that bears rehearsing? On the chat, somebody asked recently, you know, this is a, a matter of are we gonna go for global community or global hunger games? Mm -hmm. And one of the clear challenges that we face is that we do not restructure um, internally and internationally for a hunger games kind of a world. I mean, we're already mm -hmm. seeing services being diverted from, for example, OBGYN care, um, reproductive care, domestic violence care, uh, just the very services that we need, 
in the name of responding to this crisis. We're seeing mm-hmm. immigration law reinforced in the name of responding to this crisis. And don't forget, we have, at the moment, people very afraid of availing themselves of any health care or police care. But um, Medicare, in, under the new public charge rule, can be used against you in your application for citizenship. And we haven't talked much about immigration in this, but that's a huge example of how this moment is being used not to give expeditious care to everywhere, everyone, but to do kind of expedient control and disrespect for human rights. And again, that's something that we've seen in, in previous epidemics. But when we're looking for care, we get control. When we're looking for speed, we're getting slowdowns for certain people, but a speed up of a restructuring that you're right, we live with forever. So let's be very clear, whatever the details of this aid package, it's going to be socialism for the rich and totalitarianism for the most vulnerable of us. People will Mm -hmm. be even less powered to um, resist unless we reinforce union rights. They can be in this period of national emergency, no suspension as we saw under the Katrina response of prevailing wage laws, of health and safety laws. We know how emergency or disaster capitalism works. What we need to be prepared for is to take advantage of this moment to advance a kind of what I've been calling a survival socialism. And that word is, you know, something that we actually need education about. In this moment, we've just come out of an election debate where this country's failure to educate voters about basic political systems like democratic socialism um, were exposed in the um, treatment of Bernie Sanders. He, by the way, right now is talking about an alternative plan and a, mis- a response that makes perfect sense. And if you look at it from a European point of view, it's completely familiar. The sort of response mm-hmm. um, that uh, you're seeing in every Western European country, um, with a few exceptions, um, is the response of universal care, national health care, care um, unemployment, generalized unemployment services, even wages being paid. Um, it's not perfect, but there is a sense that you are not to be punished or required to pay for your illness. And we're not there yet, but that is a, a core component of a democratic socialist approach that has never yet got a respectful hearing in this country. Um, But if we were really getting coverage of the world as it is right now, we would be getting a quick education into the kind of system that is just the norm in most of our allied nations, um, but that we still uh, refuse to even consider because we can't get over that word socialism. Um, Mm -hmm. I read somewhere Mm -hmm. recently, you know, the American dream is an individual, an individuality project that will kill us collectively. You know, and, and, and that's what that's we have got. Our yeah. way yeah. of thinking about society has to change in this moment. Mm. Can yes. I just say yes. a quick thing to that? The president had an opportunity to invoke the Defense Production Act to, to, to commandeer resources for the federal government to release and build these PPE equipment, right? And it, he, he could have gotten two weeks ago this to happen, but he said he didn't want to nationalize businesses, right? It was too socialistic. Meanwhile, $500 billion, right, to bail out all of these corporations 
it's fine to nationalize and socialize when the, when the corporations are getting the money, but not when they're being asked to put in the money. And I think that is very much part of this mindset. It is so enraging that we have not invoked that clause to get those companies to make these products. And that leads me to what I want to say is we are doing a campaign um, with the National Nurses United. It's a campaign to call for, put pressure on demanding the PPEs. I just saw right now that a worker died today, uh, Mount Sinai West, in the hospitals where they're using the, the garbage bags as, as gowns. He just died this afternoon, and they're saying it's a direct result of not having the protective gear. We need to put pressure mm -hmm. There's a campaign, um, it'll come up where we're asking people to put bandanas on because the CDC has said, wear bandanas and that's all you need. Put it on, take a picture of yourself, put it out there, sign the petition. We already have 300,000 signatures and we can get more. Put pressure, put pressure. We have to keep going until we have millions of PPE and we are protecting our healthcare workers. Thank you, Eve. Um, Ijen, can you tell us again about the campaign that you mentioned at the top of the show and how people can get involved? Yes, please. Um, so uh, if, you if you can um, and you're interested in supporting caregivers who are in dire need of assistance in this moment, um, you can go to our website at domesticworkers.org um, to donate to the Coronavirus Care Fund. Um, our goal is to raise $4 million to be able to get $400 in cash assistance to 10,000 workers in the coming weeks. And also to really stay engaged with what's happening legislatively. Call your members of Congress and let them know that you want bold, uh, courageous, action and support of working people, people who are most vulnerable in this moment of crisis, they need to be at the forefront of our solutions. And, and I'm particularly concerned that immigrants are going to be left out of, of a lot of the relief. And so we'll need your support and solidarity there. Um, and your action will make all the difference. Domesticworkers.org. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and Dorothy, I want to come back around to you. So we've, we've been talking in the last couple minutes about um, existing campaigns and uh, things that people can get involved in. And of course, there's more granular, you know, level things that uh, people can do individually, particularly with respect to the isolation that you talked about. That is a risk factor. Um, what, what are some of the things that you think have to happen in are there things that people listening here can do to advance that? Well, first I wanna make the point that we should be condemning the current racial capitalist system for causing the spread of this pandemic in the United States. So it's not only that the system we have makes certain people vulnerable, that's very true, but it's also to blame for the spread of the pandemic to everybody who's vulnerable in the United States and as others have been saying globally. And so I think we should see this as a moment where we demand a radical change in the way in which human needs are met and social problems are solved. That, that it cannot no longer be reliance on a capitalist market. It can no longer be reliance on carceral approaches like locking up two million people. Uh, in the United States, who, by the way, are extremely vulnerable now to this pandemic. So uh, 
Therefore, I think that one of the best ways to address this is to get more involved in the prison abolition movement, which is campaigning for, advocating for, working toward an array of carceral approaches uh, in our system, and also uh, creating a society that doesn't rely on the market and on uh, punishing people in many of the ways we've been talking about, uh, that does, in this moment, think about how are we supporting incarcerated people? Are we demanding the release of people who are locked up? Uh, what about unhoused people? All of these people are not being even considered within the negotiations that are going on. They're not going to receive checks. Uh, and how can we think about longer term ways of supporting people? And one of those is, I think one of the uh, common, the, the people in the chat, one of the listeners brought this up, mutual aid. So in lieu of waiting for these radical changes to happen immediately, uh, abolitionists are looking at ways of meeting needs communally, collectively. Uh, and this addresses the very issue of elderly people and other people who are vulnerable, maybe because of disabilities, because of uh, lack of housing, because of lack of access to health care, uh, and forming a community action to address their needs. Donate money to bail funds, to bail people out of of jail who are there just because they can't afford it. Donate money to uh, abortion funds. Uh, we know now uh, states are beginning to ban uh, abortion services as elective uh, surgeries, uh, as uh, others were mentioning. Uh, I think it was Laura who was mentioning the pandemic is being used as an excuse to support the system as it stands and even to uh, support even more violence against vulnerable people. So uh, there are ways in which we can support social movements like prison abolition, like reproductive justice, like Medicare for all, like the Green New Deal. All of this will is a, is a way to address long-term the structures that have allowed for not only greater vulnerability of certain people, but the spread in general in the United States and globally. Thank you. Thank you, Dorothy. Um, Alvin, you know, it's, it's hard to get inspiration in uh, times like these, but yet we need it um, to uh, put one foot in front of the other. Do you find any today? Can you share the, the light that, that we need to all be reaching forward to try to move forward? Uh, one, I think this conversation has been very enlightening for a whole host of reasons, and I feel that it's actually stimulating some new ways to think about where we are. Uh, one thing I would actually uh, share with folks is we should probably rethink the term social distancing 
because it actually does carry like negative baggage. Um, and it actually does another othering that we aren't, isn't in our political DNA. Um, it's really mm -hmm. a physical distance, distancing, right? Like mm -hmm. I feel socially connected to everyone in this phone call and, this, and on the, um, the web right now, but it's the physical distancing that's really about our own self care, right? right? So I think there's a narrative shift that also needs to happen in how we identify this particular moment that we are in and really to kind of explore the opportunities. One other thing that I think we haven't had enough time to talk about is really the relationship of the coronavirus to the elections, mm. right? It has the ability to really transform uh, who the next candidates will actually be, if elections mm -hmm. will actually happen, how people will actually canvas, because we know that in order to re reach people, you actually have to be with people. Uh, but this moment is reminding us that we have to have a level of physical distancing, right? And so now we have to have new strategies to really connect with folks, to really have them better understand not only what's at stake, but to also let them know that we care about them. Thank you, Alvin. Um, Eddie, you know, you started with reminding us of the prequel to this moment. Um, and I wonder, as we think about this as a, a series of storylines, what kind of actions, what kind of things, what kind of uh, ways can we imagine acting now to take us to a different sequel, right? Get us out of this Friday the 13th uh, scenario that we're in. So we think about that. Uh, now is prologue to a different future. What would we do? What should we be doing now to change this narrative in the future? You know, um... Kim, this, this has been such a wonderful conversation, but you used the right verb, imagine, you know? To use a blues metaphor, we're at a crossroads, right? We're facing at least two paths, and down one, there's a path of authoritarianism, of fascism, where folks will exploit our hatreds and fears in order to uh, secure their own interests, uh, to continue to build a world that's predicated upon self selfishness, uh, and greed and competition, uh, to produce folks who are not interested in, in the notion of the common good in any substantive way. And then there's another path, I think, that is rooted in mutuality and solidarity and care, uh, where we see our, our own flourishing, our own sense of dignity and worth um, in relation with others whose needs and worth are as equal as our own right, a kind of relationship in community that allows us to imagine the good. We're in a moment that requires it to, I'm thinking of Stuart Hall's invo invocation of conjunctural moments, right, moments of crisis and moments of possibility. That socialism is nothing but a name, as Irvin Howe said, for a name for our own desire, echoing Tolstoy, right, that we want to live in a world where we don't have to, uh, uh, you know, struggle for medicine, to eat, to roof over our head, a decent wage, we have an opportunity to break the back of Reaganism, finally. We have an opportunity to break the back of neoliberalism because its bankruptcy is evident across the world. The kind of human being that it has produced, right, is seen for what he or she is now. So part of the task, um, is to imagine ourselves differently. We have to do 
uh, I know it sounds abstract because I'm around all of these folks who are doing this extraordinary work on the ground, but it seems to me that we have to do this work of imagining ourselves differently in this moment, right? So that we can be otherwise. Emerson says that God speaks to us through our imaginations. And I, whenever I say that to my students, I say, if that's true, then what is the devil doing? <laughs> trying to keep us locked in. So I think the task of this current moment, of this current crisis, is to open up the possibilities of imagining ourselves otherwise. Imagining otherwise. What a perfect, perfect ending for a wonderful conversation. First, I, I want to ask everyone to join me in a virtual uh, applause for all of our panelists, Eve Ensler, Laura Flanders, Eddie Glau Jr., Ijin Poo, Dorothy Roberts, and Alvin Starks. We invite you to join us over Zoom for our next episode in our series, Wednesday, April 1st at 8 p.m., more information available at our website. Keep listening and support us on our Patreon page for bonus content from all of our interviews. You can find Intersectionality Matters on social media at aapf.org and everywhere podcasts are available. Intersectionality Matters is produced and edited by Julia Sharp Levine. Additional support was provided by Emmett O'Malley, Michael Kramer, Janine Irving, Alana Kane, and Andrew Sun. I'm your host, Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters. Louis Scarcella was the greatest homicide detective of his generation. I am the protector of these people. I am the guardian that they need. Derek Hamilton was the best jailhouse lawyer of his. And the law was my girlfriend. It was all I had. What happens when a group of convicted felons take on the cop who put them away? We got to attack Scarcella. Come and get me. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.